Mormon Stories Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to Mormon Stories are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. This podcast is also available in high-definition video at youtube.com slash mormonstories. Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy when your way. Your, your point number eight touches on something that, for me, would be essential in, in the construction of my own faith, and that would be, you know, universality, you know, this impulse um, that says we have a lot to learn from other people, that we're not the arbiters or the possessors of all truth, and that we have a lot to learn and, and value and respect from others. Um Is that pretty essential for you? And does that still feel like it can, it can be a Mormon impulse? Some people today like to associate Mormonism with just exclusivity and, and, um, superiority. Yeah. And I'm not hearing that in that, in that point. No, I think that's contrary to what Joseph taught. And I meant to allude to some of that before. If I, am under the illusion that I possess all goodness and all truth because I'm a Latter-day Saint that um, makes the 13th article of faith inert and wrong, doesn't it? So in popular culture, we, any of us Mormons like any of us Americans or any of us Chinese can imagine that we're at the center of everything. Um, if you live in New York, you think you're at the center of the universe sometimes. So any that's not a Mormon problem merely. That's a that's a human problem that we can um, get us, or even an urban parochialism um, that thinks you've got it all. That's um, not humble, and a lack of humility is not just off-putting. It's less smart. You, you cut off your radar for reality if you start thinking like that. So, yes, I would say that is as essential as anything else I could say about my faith, because um, I have direct experience of that, direct testimony of that, that I have much to learn from all sorts of people. This notion of being the chosen people, um, I like to examine that article, the, before chosen, uh, it does feel to me, since I invest in Joseph Smith and the fruits that came out of Joseph Smith's teaching in the form of Mormon, the Mormon church and Mormon culture, um, I, I am comfortable thinking that he was chosen for a task and that we as a people are chosen, but I mean chosen with a commission or a, a task chosen for a purpose to go do certain good things. What seems to me a logical mistake is to presume that because you're chosen that someone else isn't chosen by God for their tasks. Um, there are passages in the Book of Mormon that, um, like Second Nephi 29, that suggest that God um, gives his word to all the people of the earth. Um, I'm the God of the peoples in the north and the south and the east and the west and the isles of the sea, and I give my word to all of them. So if there's anything to the biblical account of 
God choosing the Levites, I choose you to have this priesthood and do this role. That doesn't smack of superiority. It sort of is like me saying, I choose you, my third daughter, to do the dishes tonight or <laughs> something. Um, so not, not necessarily superiority, not exclusivism, but also not being afraid of that word chosen. Just it wants a careful direct object at the end of that sentence that starts out with chosen. Not not the only ones who are chosen. Is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. not, not exclusively chosen. Not exclusively chosen or not necessarily exclusively chosen for any particular task. And chosenness does not necessarily imply superiority. And yet, um, I, like, I like that uh, way of looking at things. The and yeah, we have the Doctrine and Covenants section one, I believe it is, that basically says, you know, the one and only true church with whom God is pleased and others are abominations. And we have this notion of authority uh, as it relates to ordinances that basically negates every other religious, if, to some people's understanding, negates the validity of every other religious ordinance performed you know, in terms of baptism or marriage or whatever yeah. in the entire world. And, of course, all of the non-Christian traditions especially. And so, you know, and then we have the the brethren that some would say very much encourage this air of superiority or exclusivity or of not just a chosen but the chosen. I think there's a lot in Mormonism that that would push us in the other direction. Yeah. And I wonder how you cope with that? Well, um, I cope with it. Interrupt me, please, if I said this already, but I have a basic premise that is a platform for everything we've been talking about, and that is that I do not construe. I think I formulated it when I was writing what I wrote in a thoughtful faith, by the way, so that's been with me for a long time. I do not construe that the church is essentially divine with only um, being marred by some errors by people because they're humans, but rather I flip that upside down. I think the church is entirely made up of human beings, including Joseph Smith, and we Mormons say that to ourselves, but then we almost deify him um, too readily. But I think Joseph Smith was entirely a human being like you or I with everything that that entails. Um, human beings who are trying to respond to the divine with which they've been touched. Did I say that already? No. Um, so if you, if you enter the conversation that way, then um, you're left with Joseph Smith like the rest of us is encountering the divine and trying to respond to it, the divine as he believes that he's encountered and trying to respond to it. So he... He understood things differently along the way. Um, this is He had to cast God's words or his sense of these revelations. This is the only true and living church with which I, the Lord, am well pleased. But, but he also talked later in his life about the first great and fundamental principle of Mormonism is to embrace truth and goodness from whatever source. How does one hold both those together? Well, I could talk about that, but if you're going to be a Mormon, you got to find a way to reconcile what that means. So that word, 
first of all, in either case, it's Joseph having to cast his sense of revelation into words, and sometimes he changed those, so sometimes that got a little experimental, so there's room for growth line upon line, truth upon um, truth, principle, on, precept on precept. Um, another thing is, what does that word true mean um, in that sentence? So we Mormons who have been to the temple um, have reference to the true order of prayer and deference to Mormon sense of privacy about the temple precludes me from wanting to go into detail, but there's a spot in the temple ceremony where uh, you assemble in a particular um, fashion in the context of making covenants of obedience and purity and, and that, and pray in that form, and that's called the true order of prayer. What does that mean, that my prayer when I'm not doing that is false order of prayer? That would be silly, and Mormons wouldn't think that. Does it? I wouldn't, in that true order of prayer in the temple, necessarily be pleading certain things in my heart or certain things that are intimate struggle with my family. I might with some, but I might not, because there are other places where other forms of prayer are more appropriate, more fitting to to the needs of the moment. So. Um, there is that word, only true church, with which I, the Lord, am I'm well pleased. But it's just got to be balanced with other Mormon scripture and, frankly, with experience. Um, I, um, my friend, the Unitarian pastor here in, um, in Logan, Utah, has had me over to speak at her church, and I would love to have her come and speak at my church um, and learn from them as as Joseph's other teaching said. So it could be contradiction, it could be growth um, on Joseph's part even, or change. Um, Joseph, we have in those accounts of the first vision what it seemed to mean to him, how he interpreted it, um, probably changed as he grew and had more experiences. Um, famously these days, um, all of the 19th century leaders virtually seem to assume that the Book of Mormon explained all the Native American peoples in the land, and um, many of the authorities, and certainly the even the apologetic um, folks at BYU or elsewhere, um, defend, spending their um, scholarly careers largely defending the Book of Mormon, don't think that way. So there was. That's what they thought, and we don't think that now. There's there's room for growth and shift. But in more, but in the Mormonism that I sort of absorbed, you could look at the Bible as being flawed because it wasn't necessarily translated correctly. But I wasn't raised to be able to have that flexibility to look at the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants and discount certain sections as potentially an error or contradictory or a sign of a less mature understanding by Joseph Smith, for example. Yeah. It sounds like you're you're okay even taking a scripture out of the Doctrine and Covenants and saying, you know, one possibility is I'm not reading it correctly, but another is that it may not be completely accurate. Um, I don't want to come across as... Um 
disrespectful to Joseph Smith, um, and I do think we can talk about this cafeteria Mormon conversation that's all over the place uh, um, in last decades, but especially um, recently. Um, I think there are some real dangers with a do-it-yourself, make it up as you go, I'm more importantly in this institution, or I know as much as Joseph Smith did, if there's anything to God breaking through ordinariness to give flashes of light to Joseph, that may not be true. So I don't want to um, declare my own religion. But it does seem to me the Bible doesn't have contradiction and error in it merely because it was mistranslated in some sense. It's a record of a people doing just what I said that we Mormons do, including Mormon leaders, and that is trying to respond to the divine with which they've been touched. And the process in the Hebrew Bible is a very human, messy affair. And people can go too far and forget the profundity there. I mean, there was growth with the very idea of encountering a God or imagining a God, understanding a God who cared about goodness instead of just various forms of power. That's revolutionary in human history. That's a big, big deal um, to have that righteous God require righteousness of his people in a covenant is a profound exercise as the ancient world goes. So, um, so I don't want to treat scripture lightly, but, um, but there is a process both in the Bible and in Joseph Smith's life where he, well, in one example, and it's kind of contradictory. Some of the reports of how he received revelations are that he paused, he spoke deliberately, he dictated them, and he didn't change anything, and there they are, or some reports that the Book of Mormon came out that way. But on the other hand, we have his translation of the Bible, which the records imply was clearly quite an experimental thing, where in the, in the Bible that he was working from and on some of the manuscript pages, um, in which dictation was taken from him. He crosses out parts and then crosses out the parts he changed and crosses those out. And uh, you must, the, the ninth section of the Doctrine and Covenants, it says you've got to work it out in your mind and pray about it and I'll reinforce it with uh, uh, discouraging or encouraging uh, confirmation or disconfirmation. So um, it's not all neat and simple. There is... There is growth, and so I'd want to say of any passage that I encounter, what's the context, what's it referring to, what is this true, what does this word true mean, how is it used elsewhere in the scriptures, did Joseph um, teach other things that we need to contextualize that with, because if I don't, I'm being a cafeteria Mormon only paying attention to that first section of Doctrine and Covenants and not paying attention to the 13th article of faith or Joseph's later sermons or the 49th section of the Doctrine and Covenants um, that talks about other holy men that, he, that I, the Lord, have that you know not of. Um, you can't, can't just choose that one verse and say that's the essence of our religion without accounting for these other passages and without changes in Joseph on other fronts. So comfortable is a little word, um, interesting word. I don't mean to be casual or facile about it, but it seems to me you can only lock on to one phrase by being a, irresponsible. So um, 
So I understand what you're saying about both a flexibility with our approach to the scriptures, but also a respect for them. You're, you're kind of asking, calling for both. What about this ordinance? What about ordinances? The fact that the, my understanding of Mormonism declares all non-LDS religious ordinances invalid. Do you have ways to think about that that might be helpful for someone like me? Well, I'm aware that um, Mormonism was f- came into being with thinking like that, but um, Captain Moroni made a banner and made a sort of an ordinance. I mean, um, ordinances are symbols, or if they're full ordinances that um, develop a ritual behind them, like temple ordinances that are um, in motion, even plays in form, then they're, then they're elongated, developed symbols, or, or acted out symbols. And um, the Pledge of Allegiance, the American flag, those aren't evil rituals or evil ordinances if one had one wanted to use a religious term on them. So I respect um, Mormon restored authority and authority to perform baptisms or do other work in the church as the authority to do that work in the church rather than a fence against all the bad guys or wrong guys are out there and all the right guys are here. Um, so the restored true church and the authority that informs it is for the task and work of the church. Do people in popular culture at all levels of the church and earlier accentuate um, this exclusiveness, exclusivity more than I might contextualize it? Um, I'm aware that that's common, but but I don't feel like a disloyal Mormon um, because I just have too much experience with my Presbyterian and Baptist and Methodist and Catholic uh, friends and non-Christian friends um, making ordinances or symbols for them that move them, that sometimes commit people to good principles, and I can't say stop that or that's all for naught. Um, I see it operate directly. I have a testimony that it helps lives in some instances. Um, And yet, um, was there a sense of Joseph having a restored authority to do these things in the work of the church? Yes, so I take those things less as screens to divide the sheep and the goats or to make sure you're sitting in the right pew when the last trumpet blows and the earth winds up uh, than blessings ordinances. That's what religions do, is they have a worldview, and they have an ethical, moral creed, and they have community. They do it together, uh, religio, to bind together, the root word of religion. And they have a symbol system, or a, a ritual system, a cult, cultus, that uh, embodies or, or symbolizes those things. And Mormons aren't the only one who do that, and they're not the only one who do it with good effect, but we can claim exclusivity in the commission that we're called to within the purposes of the church. That doesn't seem contradictory to me, though though I acknowledge that um, a lot of people either don't see it 
the same way I do, or they assume that it means everyone else is wrong and bad. Because the, the logic, as I understand it, behind all our temple work for the, for the proxy ordinances is that without, uh, I don't want to say Mormon baptism, but really it's without a Mormon baptism, these people aren't going to be able to actually be saved. And without a Mormon marriage, you know, you can't reach the highest degree. So it's, it's not framed for us in a way, even by the top church leadership, seemingly as doctrine. It's not framed for us as just activities to be done within the context of our sphere. But instead, the fact that we're baptizing Jews from the Holocaust, it's because that's what they need to be able to have a chance in the afterlife. And so I'm, I'm sort of asking you again what I've already asked you, and I can just respond by saying, you're saying that's not your understanding, or that's not where you're putting your in investment of belief? I have limited investment on all that exclusivity stuff because I have so much experience in the spirit of other aspects of Mormonism that we've been discussing that I have to welcome and that I take to be authentically Mormon requirements um, so I think that's important but um, but maybe it works that way God didn't tell me that directly and um, there are elements in what Joseph presumed or understood and was revealed to him since I haven't asked Joseph that directly face to face um, and so it might well be that those ordinances, um, like a temple marriage, need to be performed vicariously. Or um, So maybe it works that way, and if so, I still take it to be a blessing, and you didn't have the opportunity to do that, and this symbolizes this, and so it's a necessity. So, so I can respect vicarious work, um, even with some exclusivity, to it, if that's how the Lord wants it done, that, then I want to defer to that. I just um, don't think that negates. I'm sure there's all sorts of empty symbols taking the name of the Lord God in vain with covenants inside and outside the church. So I'm sure there's wrong, unhelpful rituals or emptiness, apostate notions that get off track. That's all plausible to me. What is not plausible to me is that um, other symbols or baptisms don't have value in their spheres. Right. Um, so I'm going to cluster a few of, of some of these final points you make, um, and it, I don't want to give short shrift to it, but the truth is um, there's some things that I really want to get to on behalf of my listeners that just make it so we don't have time to really dig deep but but there's a real there's a real reliance on Christ in in some of these points for you uh, that 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 Christ for you represents what the purpose of life is, which you list as we're invited to live, to render service, and to acquire knowledge, and that Christ in some ways is the model of authenticity or God's essence. Um, so. I, it's it's seemingly heretical for me to say, give me a minute on Christ, you know? <laughs> yeah. When I know that that's the pillar. But sometimes that's not what people are hung up on. 
And I want to be able to address the things that people get hung up on, but I also don't want to just leave Christ out of it. Okay. So maybe talk briefly about that. We can that. talk again sometime if you ever want to pursue any of these things more than we have time for. But um, Christ is like us, but not altogether in Mormon thinking. And um, there's something haunting about that figure. I think we're all terribly presumptuous about Christ that we have a grip or when we say what would Jesus do sort of questions that's not always obvious to me in response if the New Testament and uh, the Book of Mormon uh, as Jesus is portrayed there by the way um, Christ um, surprises everybody and challenges everybody and uses pretty harsh language about it sometime, which we proper Mormons never do. We think what would Christ do means always be polite, but he said things like, listen, you bloodsuckers, you bag of maggots who are inside full of worms and decay and on the outside are all pretty and polished. I mean, this is not polite talk. Um, he says, get thee behind me, Satan, for Peter's trying to honor him for... Um, saying, you'll never wash my feet. And so um, Jesus is a surprising, challenging, bracing, as well as loving and merciful figure. And I think that we're all very casual when we evangelicals might put a bumper st sticker on our car saying, Jesus is my best friend. Um, there's a problem with that. But there's so much potency to this uneducated peasant person from this obscure country. There's so much that you can get figures. One of my favorites is uh, Franz Kafka, who writes haunting, penetrating parables and stories um, getting at elements of the human condition that others don't articulate so well. Uh, so as a not a Christian, not a theist, as far as I know, and he's asked, so what do you do about Christ, uh, the Christian Christ, his answer is take care that you don't look too deeply into that abyss of light lest you fall in. Um, I find Christ for me that there's a, a something there, a surprising, challenging, whether it's literally the words of Christ as they're portrayed in the New Testament or it's the early community remembering the spirit of his teaching and shaping the story in their sincere memories as those Gospels have some of, we can demonstrate because of some of their differences. Um, this idea, when, you've, when you, John DeLynn, have felt betrayed, orphaned, or not supported in some Thing that you should have been supported in. You, you know what it feels like to be undercut. Um, you don't know what it's like to be put to death by being betrayed or crucified. Some human, some of us humans do. To have a figure um, in the memory of his intimate followers or literally saying historically, while being impaled, forgive. Yeah, that's kind of a, that's not normal. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a, I, I can say if there's divine or transcendence, maybe it looks like something like that. Um, so that, I think there's a something there for Christ. But 
we're not getting at Christ, we're getting at portraits of Christ and memories that are passed down of disciples about Christ. We're, so we have to allow for the human in that process as, as well as this figure, but I think there's a light that shines through the darkness there. I don't know about creeds or everybody's articles of faith about every metaphysical ontological thing about him. I just know um, that there's something that captures me. I think I remember you writing something to the effect of, even if you were to discover that that Christ was a construction of man, that to you it would have been a significant and a marvelous construction, just just the idea of what he stood for, what he taught, and and what we might derive from his example, that that would be an achievement in and of itself. From a historical perspective? What I was drawing on is Dostoevsky's um, writing in that direction. And he said, if I were, as he wrote in some personal correspondence to a friend while he was in Siberia not having fun, um, if I were to find that Christ were outside the truth and the truth were outside of Christ, I'd still, I would choose to remain with Christ rather than with the truth. Um, and that's more complicated than you want to get into, but it can lead us to a kind of a philosophy of how we think we know truth and how that relates to goodness. So it takes us to the edge of our apprehension of reality. And an example of a secular struggle that way would be to go read or reread um, Robert Persig's famous book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And the thesis of that profound and delightful book, but entirely secular book, is um, that quality, capital Q quality, which is a rich, tough concept that he maps out and unpacks in the book, defines truth philosophically more than truth defines quality. So that's a tough wrestle. Something like that I think Dostoevsky is getting at because he had so much integrity, was willing to suffer and die for truth. It wasn't that he was being light with regard for the truth, but I think he meant something like how do you how do you tell at some level of consciousness is is light a particle or a ray? Can't tell it's both of those things. Quality and truth have this symbiotic relationship there. So so there's some light emitting, some for even an atheist Kafka, some abyss of light that is true, whether it's true or not, in the Christian creeds or access to this figure. So he's clearly not a construction. There are, there are scholars in the 19th century who tried to allege that, and people who don't know very much tried to allege it's possible that Jesus was just a manufactured figure. There's evidence to show that that's um, silly. This was a historical figure, and we know it from some non-Christian sources. Who, but, but the portrait done, accomplished by these fishermen, is there's just um, there's a something there. So I don't think it's manufactured. But it is partly manufactured in the sense, as I said all earlier, it's a it's a memory, it's a portrait, it's not a 
We're not shaking hands with Jesus. We're encountering Jesus obliquely through the memories of these early communities. And and when you talk about you'd rather you'd rather go with Jesus than truth, and you, you I'm just trying to sort of restate it in in maybe I, more commonly accessible terms. I say that Dostoevsky said right. that, and that I point to there's something there to wrestle with. And and the and I think and I just want to sort of reiterate the point you might be making, which is that there's there's for you maybe there's more to truth than what science can reveal and what uh, logic or evidence quote evidence historical or otherwise can um, can produce is that sure. Science, as I suggested earlier, is a wonderful method that's very new. By the way, we didn't mean in 1850 by the word science what we mean today. We used to mean careful examination and then a taxonomy like the periodic table. Um, the idea that there's hypothesis and then testing is kind of a late 19th century and afterwards sort of a thing for defining science. It's a wonderful tool. I'll take all of it I can get, as I said, but it, not all things are testable through those means. And so that alone, let alone everything else you just said, suggests that um, science doesn't get at all truth. What it gets at, I have high regard for, even though it's sometimes overturned by other models and other modes of testing that later scientists develop, so it doesn't mean foolproof, but I very high regard for science and the scientific method, and I have no illusion, as most scientists ought not, that that gets at all truth or is the only way for us to proceed in how we think we know things. I mean, scientists don't really, there's a few Mr. Spock-like folks who may, but um, from Star Trek, that is pure rationality and no other part of humanity, but they don't really live that way in their friendships or when they encounter art or other ways of knowing. And some of the other ways of knowing, just as a, as a quick, just enumeration of a couple? Well, you. when I counter music, I sometimes feel like I'm encountering not just phenomena, but some sort of truth, some sort of intelligent giving me access to a different realm. I can encounter that in art. I've already suggested when I learned to swim, when I learned to ride a bike, when I learned to shoot a basketball, there's a body knowing, there's an intelligence that's not a rational thing in the process of athletics. Of If I could do it, I'm sure it works that way in ballet or the uneven bars while we're talking in the midst of the Olympics here. Um, friendship, love um, are important truths, relational truths that come from experience but not broken down into little Euclidean grids of logic and reason. But So there's lots of common sense, um, everyday experience examples. Um, give me all the reason you can marshal, give me all the science and evidence you can marshal. Don't be dull enough to misunderstand that as our only access to verities. Right. So, so just to sort of close the little section on Christ, you write here, no matter, no matter your faith or disbelief, all are better off with the light of his image. Do you still feel that way today? 
Um, yeah, which isn't to say a Buddhist living three centuries before Christ is damned and couldn't be a noble great soul. And I take, I take it that our growth and refinement and expansion is part of a point of our being here and our making purpose and meaning and it, and living into God's purpose and meaning is part of my belief but if that's true then that is not to say that a Buddhist living three centuries before Christ can't be on the path to betterment to growth to goodness to nobility just like I am but I think Christ as a figure um, is a gift is a emanates things that are good, true, and beautiful that um, to in, that I think it's kind of pathetic to go to university and not encounter that figure, not by someone preaching the religion to you, but encountering that most influential human who ever lived. Um, that seems weak to me, so yes, better off. Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ, grappling with Christ, not missing the import of what my conjuring Kafka on that point represents. Um, I don't have to ask you to believe, become a Christian necessarily to say that that's important. There's something there to grapple with as a human being. And I also don't think you ought to graduate with uh, encountering Gandhi Right. You, we'll touch on a couple more points here, but you talk about it. You say anyone can conform blindly to the church. Now we're talking, and anyone can withdraw. But you write that the more difficult and worthy accomplishment, maybe, lies in the way of Jesus, which is in meek, courageous service, and in constructive interaction with God's children, which you which you seem to say that at least for you um, there's something about the weekly church experience that facilitate, facilitates this or makes it more likely or more probable or more accessible than just extricating yourself from that church experience and trying to, to kind of do it yourself. What's that yet? Live a good life? Um, yeah. Um, I need, I think we could do all sorts of things better in our culture. So sometimes um, we our Sunday schools don't tend to be thoughtful things. They tend to be socially scripted things and overly correlated things. And I think they're that way because um, it, we're a lay church and we don't want some intellectual cousin of John DeLynn being a bozo with irrelevant egghead questions that lead us off into some thicket that's not relevant to constructive living. Uh, and I think we overdo it as a people so much that we um, have correlated thoughtfulness out of our conversations. So um, I certainly need respite from that sometimes. And as part of the 13th article of faith, I make it a point a number of times a year to visit other churches and be edified with the Episcopalians who are asking good, thoughtful, socially relevant questions on a frequent basis. And I don't, that's not 
disloyal to my Mormon faith or Mormon membership at all, as far as I can make out. I also need sometimes a way to um, worship in nature in the canyons by myself. But as a default drive, there are some things that happen in church that for me, and I don't want to come across the same for you and you and you necessarily, but I think I am better off working from within. It's sort of like you can lose the pulse of the community and the power and energy there by a do-it-yourself. I had a I can't remember if you alluded to it in your introduction of me when we began, but I had a couple of years at the University of Rochester as a Mellon postdoc fellow, and that was a privileged situation where I had a lot of time to do my writing and research, and that's what I needed and was hungry to do, and yay. But um, if I didn't force myself to the office and be involved in that community, um, a certain evolution happened, and I got isolated in a way that I wrote less well. I might be more clever or more brilliant or get more done, but it was less organically informed by the pulse of, of the community. That's a secular analog to being in church, being involved, being... It's kind of like a gyroscope. I, I really do think we can get out of tune and a little... Um, a little into ourselves or a little so free that we make our own religion as we go, which is a very popular thing and much on the ascendant in America these days. But I think it's problematic. I think that America's headlong rush away from institutions and the institutional church, in the case of Mormonism, forfeits a fabulous, rich resource that we as a people can do things that I as an individual can't, or my little self-made groups can't. I think that's important, an enormous resource, and I think it would be a mistake for me to step away from that. And I think it's one of the core elements of what makes a full-blown religion a religion. So this business about uh, I am spiritual but not religious that is all the rage um, uh, is is forfeiting the power of institutions. And within that institutional framework, if we get, if we imprison ourselves by, it's a naughty thing not to be to every meeting or to go visit another church or something, I think that's equally problematic. So I know that misinterpreted um, institutional churches can be oppressive or limiting but I don't think they are by definition. I don't think they need to be. In fact, I think you and I have a responsibility in faithfulness to the tradition not to let that be for ourselves. There's a certain amount of privilege that you and I might enjoy as white, heterosexual males in the church Um that would make it so we might have a different experience than someone who's of color or female or of a different sexual orientation, um, such that they might experience a very different uh, thing when they attend the LDS church. They might experience oppression or abuse or uh, a culture that feels suffocating. 
or even untrue, you know, spiritually stifling to them. Yeah. And, you know, we see a lot of these people voting with their feet, so to speak. Um, what would be your commentary to those who who experience a very different church and who for them decide that they just, that this isn't the place for them? Do you feel like they're missing out, that they should reconsider? Do you feel like that path is equally legitimate to, to leave? Mm. What are your reflections? Do you, do you see good cause for that for some people? Or do you feel like anyone who leaves is missing the boat and and selling themselves short? Yeah. Um, if I say if, and I mean when, because a constant stream of people are in my office on campus having me take off my academic religious studies professor hat and could you talk to me as a Latter-day Saint I'm struggling or I am gay or whatever other issues, having intellectual issues um, with the church or social ones. And um, my first deepest commitment is to listen and know who it is that I'm talking to. Um, because while all sorts of religious people, including Latter-day Saints, talk them into belief by cheerleading or by ostrich faith, not looking at hard things, etc., it's also true that disbelievers um, often want to hear what they want to hear, want to hear a comforting message and follow that comforting I give myself permission to be away. So the psychology of belief and unbelief, commitment and un um, lack of commitment or forsaking is complex, and I want to know who it is that I'm talking to. But um, certainly um, that's such a complex issue and cluster of issues you're talking about, it's hard to hard to parse it out. But if I were making a historical analogy um, saying that I were living in the 1940s and encountering racism all over in the church in its um, racialist policy. They didn't mean to be racist in, with any animosity. The, the saints, by and large, um, meant to be loving, good people. What is that recent film based on a book, The Help? Did you ever see The Help? Mm -hmm. um, the Help was kind of touching and funny, but it was missing a character that was very common in real life, and that is not just um, racist white people and one good noble white person here and there. There was a whole lot of white people who had inherited a racism but had good hearts. They just couldn't see through this inherited problem that they had. And so we Mormons were part of that, right, with with virtually all other Americans, we had inherited a racism and we had to work our way through it and had worked our way through it as much as most people had by the 1970s, except for this big official policy. And then, as the authorities proclaimed by revelation, we got through it. And people make fun of that, like, oh, God changed his mind. Maybe not. M maybe. God didn't change his mind, but said it's now time for a change. But a different way to interpret it was, yeah, this is wrong. Here's a revelation. 
feel that it's wrong and we release from it. There's various ways to interpret that. Um, but we worked our way through it as a people and racism is, the vestiges of racism are dramatically slight compared to what was in already centuries for Mormons and for other Americans. And so we've got analogous issues here. Are we anti-intellectual and therefore I feel betrayed when I encounter matters of history that really bug me, like, like who was Joseph Smith married to when, um, or different accounts of the first vision, or Abraham doesn't comport with modern translations of those manuscripts. Um, so um, I think it's my choice that I know those issues as well as you do, Peter or Marianne, I think, I think I understand those issues as well as you do. And it's not a necessary interpretation how you're responding this. It may be that you need to do this with integrity, but if you're looking for grounds for faith and staying in the church, it's possible to explore those issues and, and come to terms with them with integrity. And I think personally that there's such a great resource in the church on spiritual and social grounds, and there's so much goodness that happens there that I value it highly, that so highly that I've chosen to work from within. And when I do that, I'll come to homosexuality in a minute, so I'm not ignoring that, but when I do that on intellectual issues or matters of history, and I do it in love instead of I'm an um, arrogant intellectual twit who went to school and learned these things and you didn't because you're a dentist or you're a car mechanic. Um, if I do that humbly, knowing that I can't fix my car and I'm very grateful for you and I can't fix my cavity, I'm very grateful for you and I have something to offer because I wrestled with these issues. If I do that with love and not with haughtiness or trying to um, go in like a bull in a, piner, um, in a china shop, show forbearance and care, I find that I can gain the trust often of people, including people of influence in the local or wider church, um, so that I'm not read as an enemy to the church. So, for instance, I've been, this is not the only high council I've been on, and I've been on um, high council where I was asked to take time in high council saying, how should we address our young people who are suffering or our older people who are suffering and asking hard questions? How might this issue be handled and what is the truth of the matter? Um, an entire high council meeting turned over to me to talk about principles of that and then afterwards said, we need to address that. People are hurting. And then I was asked to do that for high councils evermore, take a smaller amount of time and take an issue um, in love, trust, faith, camaraderie, and not taking my saber and putting a Z in everybody's shirt. Um, I found that uh, that approach, um, that people are quite flexible. They can be conservative and come from a conservative background, but be quite open to, oh, we didn't know it was like that, or we have to allow for Masonic influence here if we're going to actually come to terms with this and then so what 
and if that's done in a context of support and faith, it can be addressed. So the fact that the general church isn't there yet, it's basically well-intended, sometimes fearful, but it's basically well-intended. And it's trying. And there's curriculum being written right now in the church education system for the next church history cycle. It's trying to say, oh yeah, we got to address these things and we're going to do it better. And the historical department of the church is saying, we'd like to publish and let you look at all the documents we look like look at and making our judgments. We'd like to give you short answers, and if you want them, longer answers. And if you want all the materials that we look at and make your own judgments, we're not trying to hide things. So the church as an entity, just like you or me as an individual, has to struggle through about how to do that. On matters like um, homosexuality, that is going to be in my estimate more thorny for us as a people to work through and rest where we're finally going to rest with than than the black issue because um, it's got analogously all the components of that difficulty in some ways plus it's closer to home with the theology about how salvation and exaltation happens so it impinges on matters that are at the core of Mormon theology, um, we are moving and are going to move on that issue as a people, I think. Um, but it's, and where we're moving is not at all obvious. Um, but clearly, um, general authorities of the church um, certainly acknowledge that um, there's a whole lot of discussion and prayer to keep happening as they address that issue, and a whole bunch of eye-opening to happen as we educate ourselves. Because Mormon ways and Mormon theology, the church itself came into being at a time when that wasn't much contemplated. It's, it isn't a live-in-your-face sort of an issue, and of course it was assumed to be wicked, unnatural, and an abomination. And now uh, complexity is, um, is revealing itself to us. Kind of like it used to be that we thought God alone controlled life and death, and now we can create life in a lot of tricky in vitreo ways and clone sheep. And uh, some of our assumptions are manifestly not so. What's the so what that is to that as we work through it? So we have to, as a people, address that. I hope. I hope, um, Melvin. <laughs> as you talk to me about your struggle with this and how do I have a place in the church. I hope you can find a place. I find it a fabulous resource. And we're in motion, sort of like if we were in 1935, Mormonism dealing with the black issue. I think the discussion is happening and warming and will continue. But, um, but if you were my son, I want you to... Um, I think it's clear, I'm entirely convinced that while there's a whole lot of messed up gender identity and sexuality and sexual expression among heterosexuals and homosexuals and transgender people, I think human sexuality and gender is fraught and difficult. And I think the church, in being conservative, 
in some ways, by which I mean being careful to conserve valuable principles instead of be tossed about with every new cultural turn in the river. Um, that that's not a silly thing, but I don't think we're where we need to be. And I'm entirely convinced that through all of that confusion and even wrongness, sin about sexuality and both heterosexual and homosexual arenas, that there is such a thing, and not uncommonly as a homosexual who is naturally homosexual, as naturally as I am heterosexual, and um, who's as good and ethical and smart as I am by and large, and that we as a church have to grasp that fact in compassion. And I don't think I'll debate about this issue and opposing points of view as necessarily homophobic as it's easily labeled. But it's clear that we haven't come to terms with that fact, we haven't grasped it, and we haven't worked through the so what. Now, now what? So we have a long ways to go with a person um, as a people. And if you as my son were to ask what for me, um, that's tricky. I can't answer that for you. I can only answer on those terms of I'm willing to declare publicly. I have declared publicly um, in parades. For instance, um, my intention to acknowledge that there's such a human as you that's as human as me and that we have to grapple through with that, what that means not dictated to by social antagonisms and pressures but in love sort out what that means. You might help us from within if you choose and if you choose without, I will understand, because I want you to love and be loved, because I know that matters to you as much as it matters to me. So something along those lines. So if, uh, so if for any of these reasons, intellectual, historical, cultural, sexual, if somebody felt led spiritually or by God to leave Mormonism and pursue another route do you have a do you have a view or a sense for god that could allow that to be somehow legitimate as as the quest that they need to make yeah well my default drive would not be to encourage it because i um have an experience a witness in common parlance a testimony of the rich good spiritual power there of we imperfect humans striving to respond to the divine. So my default drive would to see if we could be to see if we could explore options where you might with integrity find a way to work from within and doubtless you like me have need some rough edges knocked off too. It's not if we villainize the church, um, my experience is that we're doing a caricature because there's so much rich goodness there. But I, like you, am aware that that's, um, there are problematic elements and it's not for me but you and God to judge what your path is. So I have children, Barlow children and Barlow siblings who have opted out of the church um, either explicitly or in any meaningful way. And I have others who are 
within and faithful. And I have zero sense of capacity to judge, well, you're sunk, buckle. Um, I recognize the principled and admirable ways um, in their character. And um, so um, one non-James, non-King James translation of a favorite passage in the Bible that my wife drew my attention to alludes to God's rich, ver the rich variety of God's wisdom. Um, and I imagine, as I imagine God, as I have faith in God, God is um, nothing if not pure love. If God is pure power without pure love, then I may fear that God, but I, I'm not devoted to that God. Um, so the God that I believe in, have faith in, is a God of pure love, and that love is an active reaching out on God's part to invite John and Margie and Deborah and everyone to betterness, to fullness, to happiness, and those paths um, aren't aren't like that. They're like in human life. So I wouldn't be prepared to assign anybody to I'm in good shape and you're in bad shape very easily. I just know it's my experience and my observation that I'm not at all sure that in the majority of cases people are their lives are bettered by leaving, but um, I could certainly imagine instances where that is. I'm a little loath, maybe even too loath, to say that sentence because I think um, we're so susceptible to self-justification that um, we might take the ways of least resistance, and I don't necessarily think that's the way of, that's most constructive for souls or characters. Okay, that so... That was kind of preachy, wasn't it? That's awesome. All right. That's good. Preach it. Um, okay, so I'll just say that for now we're wrapping up those those pillars um, of your faith, and, and thank you for sharing them. And now I want to just sort of react to it and say that, yeah, this is a, this is a thoughtful faith. This is a Mormonism that I, John DeLynn, in 2012, and that many of my um, friends and colleagues, I'm guessing, not, not all, maybe not even most, but at least some will say, okay, this Phil Barlow approach to Mormonism is one that, that is a good balance of thought and faith and universalistic impulses and flexibility. I could sign up for that. However, if you look at the way that the church leadership has, you know, responded to things like dialogue or sunstone or intellectuals, if you look at the way that they talk about faith and truth, um, People like you certainly haven't been elevated into church leadership status as far as we can see. Now, there's a, a Marlon Jensen and maybe even a Jeffrey Holland that that gives signals to the extent that they might um, view you as a kindred perspective in how you view your Mormonism. 
but if you certainly listen to the general conference talks or read the curriculum, this is this is not the flavor of Mormonism that is endorsed uh, or encouraged. And you might even have a de decent case to say that this is a type of Mormonism that in the past has been punished or de-emphasized or chastised. And, um, and it's just not, it's not official. It's not sanctioned. It's not blessed. And so I don't know if that's how you would experience the church in 2012 or 2000 and, one or even 1995. But um, how can someone, what if someone's saying, I, I feel like I want, I need permission to approach Mormonism in a way similar to the way Phil Barlow is approaching it? Because I don't feel like that's what the brethren are encouraging me. You know, the, 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 you'll, you'll hear a general conference talk that says, Either the Book of Mormon is everything it claims to be, or it's the biggest fraud ever perpetrated on mankind. Either this church is the one and only true church or not. Very binary, black and white type of thinking. What would you say to someone who says, I don't feel like this approach would be blessed by the brethren, that I'm not welcome, I'm not wanted. This perspective would be discouraged and, and chastised by yeah. those who lead it. Yeah. Well, I would certainly want to recognize, um, first of all, um, some required modesty on my part that I'm, I may be wrong about various things. I'm human and I'm always learning that I'm wrong with my best intention and being a flub up at home or in work or wherever. So what I've said isn't perfect. It's just my working understanding. Um, and I would also want to acknowledge um, what you say to the culture that there is a thread, not a thread, there's a dimension of um, hostility towards um, the intellect or um, hostility towards asking questions even. And that's, um, that's a cultural water that's developed that is out there to be navigated. So I, I do um, think you don't understand that any better than I understand that whoever's listening to us here. Um, but I have found, I've already given some examples of when I am temperate, careful, and show forth faith and love in how I go about entering that conversation or being that I have found ways to do that. Um, when I went off to school to study religion formally, Formally, I had <clears throat> a lot of people elbow me and say, "What are you gonna do with that? You're gonna you're um, being educated for the ministry, sort of things." And there was a ha ha joke behind that, like Mormons don't have that, so this is a bridge to nowhere, or a degree to nowhere. Um, and in some considerable minority of those voices, I also felt envy, like, and I want to do that <laughs> too. Um, and so I said to myself, I don't know if there's a door there for me that's going to lead to an academic position or an institute position, or I don't know if anything practical and professional come with it. I am going to do this. It will 
change who I am and I would like to work through these issues and sort through what I think. So I'm going to commit at least to this two-year master's program and, and do this, whether it's culturally popular or, or not. I'm going to try to be good, try to remain faithful, try not to threaten others or flaunt it all or what, but I'm going to do it. And I, so I think attitude has an awful lot to do with it. Um, so intellectuals, I've already gone on record here with you to say I don't think we can think too well. Joseph Smith's theology emphasized the intellect. God's the greatest intelligence. Whatever principles of intelligence we master here, we take with us and then we'll be better off all those threads. I try to look to deeply authentic Mormon sources when I'm asked about it or if it's appropriate um, when I'm not starting a fight or intimidating anyone but acting in authentic carefulness and care for the other that there's a way to have those conversations and have them even be valued by many people and I know a lot of people and certainly across history that there's an anti-intellectual dimension and, and that's there so what do I do if if Christ is Christ he had to confront ignorance, fear, lack of faith everywhere. So we as a people have to learn to be more mature together and open and understand that authentic questions in the spirit that I experience you as asking them, by the way, um, can, be, can be a faithful act, a necessary act, that inquiry, that... Um, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, um, license to inquire and seek grounds for authentic faith is essential to a healthy spirituality, and that many people know that without knowing it. They know it interiorly, and if they can be in conversations of faithful inquiry instead of, like I said earlier, wise guy, esoteric questions that aren't helpful, um, then they can be made to see that even as I recognize that I, I don't know if the word intellectual sounds arrogant, but I, by that word I mean people who value the life of the mind. So um, intellectuals are prone to temptations, and one of them is arrogance. So are people with authority, and so are people who are very beautiful, and so are people who are very wealthy. Any form of power carries with it the danger of arrogance and abuse of power. And, and so intellectuals need to, to be wary of that. So the people who look like Hollywood folk. So, um... Yes, I know that we've all encountered that, and to say that that's not um, what's encouraged, I think it's not encouraged because of well-intended fears that people will get involved in secular ways and be so beguiled by a bit of education that um, they lose stuff that's precious along the way and throw babies out with the bathwater. And if I were looking at that history... I think we need to do way better than that. And we need to address our manuals so that they become 
Sunday school classes in a lay church in Haiti or Peoria or Salt Lake City um, don't need to become college courses, batting things back and forth. They're meant to perpetuate and foster faith and goodness. But <clears throat> faith and goodness are better served if, if we marry the mind and the spirit. So we need to do better than that. Our manuals need to be better. We need to be simple but not simplistic. We need to be childlike without being childish. And, and we failed a lot of the times as a culture. We can do better and need to do better. And so I acknowledge the concern. But they haven't booted me out yet, so I'm trying. And I see movement um, in some circles of the culture and some signals from leadership that they recognize that a need to adjust our mode is there. If you're feeling that, Bill, if you're feeling that really strongly, then come and come to church with me and we'll teach each other as we navigate how to be that in a class and see how it's done, because I've done it poorly. I've spoken when silence would have been a better thing, and I've been silence, silent when speaking might have been a better thing. So I think it's an art form, not a science, about how to navigate that. I don't know how you experience it. Um, I know that when Elder Jensen came here uh, to Utah State last year, he made the statement that the church is experiencing apostasy on a scale not seen since Kirtland when I believe they lost a third of their membership approximately. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't want to make too much of that in a literal sense, but, you know, I I am exposed to the 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 host of people who are, are deciding to uh, question and, and in many cases just completely abandon the faith. And I see that trend as significant and growing um, in, in my conversation with at least one uh, high-ranking, I'll say, leader in the church. He, he was in tears as he basically said that we're losing many of our best and brightest. And, and so I believe that that is a real concern for the church, regardless of your beliefs about the church. And it's a real problem, and it's growing in my estimation. And it's something that needs to really be addressed. And I'm just wondering if you have thoughts on what the church might do to, um, to one, uh, avoid losing so many people, and then two, figure out if there's any way to bring some of these people back who have, who have decided that they're no longer interested. Do you have thoughts on that? Have you spent time thinking about that? Yeah. Um, well, some of it is laced into our earlier conversation, some of the principles I might turn to. I'm entirely convinced that the um, people who are leading the church are aware of the difficulty or um, crucial people among them are and that those conversations are, are ongoing. What can we do better and remain one church internationally? 
how do we speak with, how does Mitt Romney or Barack Obama speak on some point of candor about something without having it play in Syria in this disastrous way that analogously the church, how does it send a message globally to a lay church and have that work? Uh, so, so I think I just said some of them. Some of them is that our manuals and philosophy of what we mean by Sunday schools and priesthood and relief society um, gatherings when they involve lessons ought to embrace a thoughtful faith, to use our term, um, not just faith. If it's not a thoughtful faith, as I've tried to suggest, it's less faithful to Joseph Smith's teaching of who we are and how we get truth, and it won't help in the long run an awful lot of people. So we need a thoughtful faith, and that means we might think about the days when um, Lowell Benyon wrote our manuals in the middle decades of the 20th century, or Hugh Nibley, for that matter, quite a different individual than um, Lowell Binion, but there were there were works that were thoughtful that weren't um, that did not have homogenized and um, did not homogenize and correlate the lifeblood out of out of our manuals and our lessons. As part of a thoughtful faith, we need to acknowledge that faithful inquiry is a thing that opens up instead of asking scripted questions that have um, catechetical answers implied or established in every lesson. We ought to not be afraid of questions and learn the difference between fruitful and unfruitful questions. And while that may seem, um, I don't know if your eyebrows are telling me, don't give me generic answers, so I, I hope that they're not sounding generic. I think they're foundational principles that could change our curricula and our culture to engage them. Um, I was hotwired to be curious. I see it in my two-year-old child or my two-year-old grandchild. It's a sin to snuff that out. It needs discipline, it needs schooling, and it needs to know where danger is, etc. But curiosity is of the essence of who I am and how I grow. We ought to make room for that in the church. But, you know, again, there is movement. So one thing they could do is make some general statements along these lines, show it by better manuals. And um, I don't mean to be seen guilty um, of counseling the brethren, as they put it. Uh, it's not that I'm... Um, I'm just trying to answer your question if... if um, someone asked my opinion. I need. I think we as a people need to do that. Um, but there's a recent statement um, put up in um, early July on the church's um, website through the newsroom, I think, that makes a statement about these things. And it's a different statement than has... It's different than the culture you're describing, than the church leaders, and it wouldn't be up there unless they blessed it. And it... Um, hits on some of these notes, actually. It says that things like science and faith or science and revelation um, 
naturally might engender a sort of attention and um, and that that's intrinsic to religious life in all sorts of areas, not just in Mormonism, and that it might generate good questions, even perpetual questions. That's not out of the spirit of what I'm, um, how I try to remain a Latter-day Saint, and that's coming from official sources. So um, there are signals that, that um, the brethren are trying to respond constructively and prob probably had to be, um, had to learn that that's necessary. So, I mean, you, you look at um, taking Catholicism aside for a second, you look at um, mainline Protestant Christianity, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, <clears throat> Episcopalians, and signs are potentially that they're in trouble, that their memberships and attendance are declining, and that... Signs are potentially is way too gentle a way to put it. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to... For 50 take or 60 years, years, 50 or 60 years, they've been... They have many admirable things, but they've been bleeding members um, dramatically. It's not, it's not just Mormons um, have a struggle with retaining members, but the liberal churches um, have had for more than half a century. And I'm just wondering, I guess, as we as we contemplate, if you have a sense of optimism or even, uh, you know, a, a sense for whether the church can avoid that same fate, can it change in directions that, that might be similar directions that some of these other faiths have also followed and not... Uh, end up with the same outcome, which is a weakening of the vitality and yeah. a dismantling of of the things that make us strong. I think that's an excellent question because it's a real, real danger. That's a tragic um, thing that so many admirable people, unadmirable or admirable seeming, or admirable but dangerous, or wrong-headed pseudo admirable principles. Um, are potentially dissolving. I mean, some of the decline has been very rapid, and it brings on um, economic crisis within those denominations, and they have less resources to do what they need to do, and so it cycles downward. So it's not clear to me that some of those churches will survive 50 years hence. So um, that's, um, that's a real danger to be... Words like conservative and liberal um, are problematic because people attach such freight to them that you, you never know how to pronounce those words without mispronouncing the words. But um, I think there's a natural tension in sociological terms. The notion would be, how do you remain in sufficient prophetic tension with the wider host culture without dissolving into that culture? Or how do you not be so weird and different from that culture without getting smushed by that culture? Mormonism has actually done quite an admirable, remarkable job um, navigating and shifting in that amount of tension and accommodation one can observe, and careful studies have been done by some of our scholars about how that, how that works. And by and large, Mormonism 
even though if authorities of the church were asking my opinion about this or that, I'd be willing to offer it as a counsel. Um, nevertheless, in the wider scheme of things, there's been quite a successful um, navigation and just introducing more rationality or more regard for education and addressing questions does not necessarily solve the problem as our case study of the liberal churches uh, manifest and the community of Christ has decided to join their ranks and, and uh, there's a great deal to admire in them and they are in trouble in various ways. It's not an easy road necessarily. So I think that the sweet spot on that tennis racket of how to be a Mormon individually and the sweet spot on that racket of how to be a church and a people together is there is a sweet spot to how to do that and it's not necessarily becoming the culture and it's not um, being retrograde and not addressing matters of the intellect and of history and of social issues. It's somewhere in between in that tension. When I... One metaphor I use is um, I try to minimize friction in some instances, so I pour oil in my engine and try to minimize friction in other instances. Friction is my friend. I try to maximize it with good tennis shoes so I can cut left uh, when I'm on the ball court. Um, so there's a place for liberalism and conservatism because if you just go the way that the culture goes, you'll end up going the way the culture goes, and that's often not a pretty place to end up. There are some values, disciplines, inconveniences of, of discipline that are ultimately going to free us more that need to be conserved as well as the virtues of liberalism, openness, and, and high regard for freedom instead of just rhetorical regard for freedom. And we got to make a good salad dressing out of that stuff. You can get too sweet and too sour. And do you, in your mind, envision a balance that, that the brethren could strike to help us both move in a bit more of this direction and maintain its vitality? Do you think it's doable? Or do you think we're destined to to either bleed people because we don't incorporate enough thoughtfulness or liberalness, or we're destined to bleed because we, we do move in that direction, but then we become like the other Protestant churches. In, in other words, we we bleed either way. We will bleed either way because um, the psychological forces, the individual choices and minds that we have, and the cultural sway at any given minute from both ends of that spectrum will will always be at work. It seems like we could do better and and find a sweeter spot on that racket. Um, and by and large, I would say that is to move more in the direction of regard for the intellect, regard. I had in a class on this university that I was teaching, as I may have told you before even, I have um, I had three converts, one of them brilliant and, and 
a couple of them I don't know how brilliant yet I need to sound their depths more but all bright and able converts to the church who were learning for the first time in my class and a couple of them had been in the church for 10 years or more that Joseph Smith was a polygamist we can do better than that and if we say well our Sunday school classes aren't about that so how would they know or we assume that they'll know and bump into it we ought to be able to teach our history in our institute classes, in our Sunday school or priesthood classes, in a way that comes to terms with. That's not even a hard one in some ways, but it's, it's so basic that we got to do better than that. So, sure, we can. And as I say, um, I'm informed that, that a process of, I don't know if I'll toast the quality of the result. I can't speak to that, but the attempt to... Um, inoculate the youth, to use a term that's being bandied about, to incorporate more historical responsibility um, into it. This church statement, what if this church statement became prominent, was referred to in general conference, was exercised in how we do our manuals, exercised in how we share the gospel, exercised over the pulpit. Um, is it? Do I think it's possible that we could... Um, if I didn't think it was possible, I don't know how that statement exists. It's brand new out there and quite official. So, sure, I think we can do better, but that's, again, like saying welcome to the human race. We can always do better. Last question for today, and um, if, if we can have another few hours to maybe explore the other two-thirds of the questions I had for you, that'd be fabulous. But I appreciate um, so much of what you've shared with us today. My final question for you today would be, um, <clears throat> as I've read through the pillars of your faith, one of the things that really comes through for me is something that that touches on what's what's spoken about in Alma 32, which is when you when you plant the seed, when you do when you live the gospel, the Mormon gospel, it bears fruit. It blossoms forth in your life in ways that are edifying and enriching um, and that, that lead you to feel like this is the right path for you. Um, I, I guess what I'd like to ask you to end on is your sharing with us a bit about what is it about Mormonism that when you've followed it when you've planted the seed and you've lived it what types of fruits have you seen in your life that that um that have led you to to want to stick around yeah thanks um well a preliminary to that this we we have over what period of time i'm not sure but i think it bears historical examination i know of one study one dissertation that may have some of this in there but somewhere in the last 50 or 70 years moroni 10 trumped all other epistemological avenues you'll read these things you'll pray you'll get a witness you'll know this is true but there are there are others equally part of Latter-day Saint Christianity that aren't necessarily like that. Alma 32 works a little differently, or maybe Moroni 10 means that you can do this through the principles spread out in 
Alma 32, or Christ said, as he's portrayed in the New Testament Gospels, um, you're calling me a servant of, of the devil. Um, try the doctrine, and you'll experience it for yourself, and you'll know whether I speak of myself or speak for God, or, as you say, by their fruits you shall know them. There's other... Um, um, search it out in your mind, pray about it, and you'll get a sense of it. There's lots of epistemological things that need to be um, brought to bear there. And so in the spirit of um, by their fruit ye shall know them, or Alma 32, um, there's a number of things that I've stressed throughout our conversation this afternoon that I don't know in some absolute um, way, but as Joseph was always saying, this doctrine tastes good. Uh, sometimes I feel the appeal and the taste of it that way. So I like Mormon thinking about um, a virtual lack of limits on progress and what we can become. I think that can be abused and made into an absurd and blasphemous caricature just like our critics are horrified by. You know, oh, I can't wait till I zap this planet into existence. Or, I mean, it can be vulgarized um, quite readily with stuff I don't know about, but I like I like human potentiality being unleashed in Mormon theology and culture and even popular culture tends to have a grain that I think is um, constructive. When I sit in a ward council meeting, I get often thrilled. I can be in other meetings that are less thrilling, like I've been in a high council meeting where we take 10 minutes on the wickedness of um, singing a rest hymn in fast and testimony meeting because that's reserved for testimonies. So instead of announcing that, we could take a long time. So I'm not glorifying church meetings, but um, I don't mean to deify church meetings, but basically when I sit in a Bishop Brick meeting, as I do currently uh, in one of the young single adult wards as a high councilman assigned to that ward, or when formerly I've sat in ward council meetings, I'm kind of thrilled. The basic thing that's going on is how can we look after and promote human welfare? Who needs what and what can we do to be helpful? Is it sometimes informed by a culture of anti-intellectualism. Now that we could find examples of that as easily as if I asked you to say, there's the ground, step on it. That's not hard. But the intent, the flow of the stream, the reach, is um, bearing one another's burdens um, in love and kindness and humility and goodwill. Um, I'm thrilled by the practice of daily Mormonism along those um, lines. I like the Mormon thought that affects how I live and think that salvation and, in Mormon parlance, uber-salvation, um, exaltation, is a relational affair, not an individual matter. I cannot be perfect except, as the word means etymologically, whole in relationship with others, so family unit, but wider communities, generations. Uh, America, because of democracy and the virtues of democracy, also has a flip side to that coin. And one of it is individualism on steroids that can be a 
a problem. So um, I am taught, as my friend Claudia Bushman has put it before, I'm taught by my Mormon culture to say yes when I'm asked, rather than no, to, to be willing to feel uneasy if I'm saying no for calls for service. Um, there's all sorts of limits and frustration to the geographical makeup of Mormonism, and I can't go where imagination and good talks actually happen over here. I'm assigned to this ward, but in the spirit of Gene England's, um, why actually he was sort of forced or felt forced to dilute it to why the church is as true as the gospel, but in its draft form it was why the church is truer than the gospel. He tried to flaunt his irony a little bit, or his paradox a little bit more. Um, but the practical everyday encounters, not just when I'm in the mood, but like loving my family, not just when I'm in the mood of service and being there and not succumbing to popularity um, contests of ability, but working where I am to make things constructive. There's, um, that's a nice, um, at least it has plenty of strengths to recommend it. Um, a lay church has all sorts of difficulties when people are talking and proclaiming things that they don't even know the problems or questions to ask about. But um, I can get that elsewhere and I can find um, other avenues to have those conversations even within the church, let alone without the church. So I think our lay church is more an asset um, than a liability. Um, maybe I don't know what would happen if intellectual smarty pants were put in charge of the church. It would maybe become the community of Christ, or it would become Episcopalianism which has so many things that I've stressed that I admire about them. But um, I'm very happy with my Mormonism. Maybe that would be analogous to making the generals the chief commanding officer instead of the, a civilian. Maybe it's a good idea that we have a civilian rather than the military be there who needs to be open, who needs to hear those generals and those intellectuals and those lay people and the concern for a global church. Um, but maybe those natural tensions can be worked out better than we have so far. I believe they can, and I believe there's efforts on the part of some at the highest echelons of the church to be repetitive um, that are doing that. So I think the very struggle is admirable. The fruits of diligence and deseret and honeybees, the fabulous, almost incomparable, but maybe it's comparable, but not exceeded um, capacity for organization in the cause of relief of suffering, maybe a hands-on welfare system that ranks up there with the best in human history. I mean, um, the purpose of life that we were talking about earlier for a 26-year-old Joseph Smith Maybe since his birthday was in December, a 25-year-old Joseph Smith to be writing um, in the book of Moses and articulate God's purpose in a line 
is potent for me. It needs to be unpacked about what it all means, but uh, the philosopher Nietzsche said it's my ambit, and he was brilliant and colorful and um, dangerous and crazy, but there's a whole lot to admire in Nietzsche. And he says, uh, it's my ambition to write what the great thinkers of the ages have written in ten pages, nay, in ten lines. Or, as Shakespeare puts it, brevity is the soul of wit. And, and the idea of what does God do for a living in one famous line of, um, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, which is a way to say to love, but to love, love doesn't have any meaning apart from context of what you think you mean by that term, and I think it means um, the, the most healthy psychiatric, psychological definition of love would go somewhere in the direction of um, reaching out, extending yourself, being effortful in fostering the well-being and growth um, of others, other intelligences, other humans, other life. Um, I, I, um, I allow for inspiration and the capacity to, as a 20-something, to articulate such things. So I think there's a lot of fruits we could explore in a lot of directions, some of them intellectual, theological, social, personal, and as I already established, I think they're circumscribed by limits. It's made up of human beings, human beings get off track, and so I can cut them a lot of slack, as I do too, and one of the ways that they can get off track is thinking they're the only choos chosen people, or um, that authority means the answer to everything, and we're all, always right. But Joseph already said that's not so, so stuff like that. Hmm. And the terrible, terrible to contemplate um, price and sacrifice and giving that's in our legacy, and the um, make-me-weep-on-camera goodness and generosity of people called in young men's and women's organizations who are humans and can teach wacky things sometimes, of course, but by and large, um, how they've reached out to my own children and in various situations, the uh, generosity that I swim in and my family swims in um, is not unique to Mormonism, but it's um, fabulously and distinctively well orchestrated and um, extracted from the mines of the mountains of humanity, it's brought to efficient um, usefulness. Those are good fruits. Beautiful. Well, uh, Dr. Phil Barlow, uh, thank you so much for sharing um, your thoughts and feelings and perspective. The book is A Thoughtful Faith. Um, uh, again, I want to encourage listeners to check out mormonstories.org. You can comment um, on on this discussion there. Also check out athoughtfulfaith.org as a, as a separate new pilot project of uh, profiling 
various voices of, of, of thoughtful Mormon faith. Um, again, personally, I just want to thank you, Phil, for the, what you've meant to me and, and for your willingness to put yourself out there as one set of perspectives on, on how to, uh, to make the church work in the 21st century. It's been wonderful. And I hope we can have you on again. Yeah. Well, that's too many hours to impose on the world maybe, but, uh, at least we know we're um, talking conversationally about important matters, and I've appreciated your thoughts over time, too, and your um, good, earnest candor and good questioning. So I enjoyed being here. All right. Thanks, Phil, and thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Stories Podcast. To discuss this podcast with others, please check us out at mormonstories.org. To join one of our 80-plus support communities across the globe, click on the Support Communities tab at mormonstories.org. To keep this podcast alive, please consider a tax-deductible donation today by becoming a monthly subscriber at mormonstories.org. Audio and video for this podcast were provided by Richard Holdman. A big thanks to the Saber Rattlers for providing the music for today's episode. The Mormon Stories logo was generously donated by StudioCase.com. Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy when your way. Though hard to you, this journey may appear, grace shall be as your day. Where?